Why don't you turn to Acts chapter 9, please, if you would. Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 1 through 31, and the message entitled, The Salvation of Paul. This will be part one of a four-part series that we'll do in the next, uh, uh, these four Sundays. Um, have you ever thought of the number of people who have violently opposed Christianity and Jesus Christ? And in their attempt to oppose and destroy Christianity, the Christian, they ended up themselves being servants of the cross? <laughs> it's amazing. I think of two people that stand out in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar, who realized after God had humbled him that uh, God was in heaven, he did whatever he would, no one could tell him what he was doing. I think of Nahum, who was a leper, and how God healed him, and he worshipped God, and so many others in contemporary times. Now, then there's Paul the Apostle in the New Testament that we're going to be looking at, whose passion for Judaism pressed him to persecute the church of Jesus Christ with such passion that he wanted to destroy every Christian and annihilate the church. A Hebrew of Hebrews, persecuting the church constantly, taught under the feet of Gamaliel, a Roman citizen, schooled in Hebrew and Greek culture, incredibly educated, he became the most important person apart from Jesus Christ regarding the New Testament. In fact, um, he occupies the last half of the book of Acts, as you know, chapter 13 to 28, and then he appears in chapter 9 and 11. He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. I think he wrote Hebrews. That would be 14, but if you believe, at least 13. But he's an incredible vessel. And yet, everything he did, God did through him. The problem is we always get our eyes on man rather than God. All right? Um, and we have to keep that perspective always. So what we want to do is look at Paul from four perspectives, beginning with this Sunday and the next three. Um, the salvation of Paul. Second, the apostleship of Paul. Third, the commitment of Paul. And lastly, the heart of Paul. And this was give us a good perspective of this incredible man that God used, and many like him since that day. So let's begin with the salvation of Paul, which is characterized by three things in, in our 31 verses. The text is long. Bear with me, and we'll read it so you have it in your heart and mind here. Then Saul, uh, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked letters from him, uh, for the, to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might um, bring them down to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when, uh, when his eyes were open, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and um, neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, to, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. 
And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard um, from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief uh, priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as he came, has sent me to you now that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food and was strengthened, then Saul spent some days with the disciples of Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. And then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who call on the name of Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a uh, large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him in and brought him to the disciples, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them in Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches uh, throughout all Judea, Galatia, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. The salvation of Paul in our text here is characterized by the following. First, the conversion of Saul in verses 1 through 9. Second, the commission of Saul in verse 10 through 19. And thirdly, the consecration of Saul, verse 20 through 31. Notice that Saul, his name will change to Paul as we move on in our study. He begins with the conversion of Saul, something that you have experienced, you know firsthand what is going on here. He used to not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's going to come to know that. Notice verse 1 and 2. Saul's mission to Damascus describes for us the scenario here. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. His attitude was consistent with his past. He is the number one enemy of the Christian and the church. Saul was present and consenting to the stoning of Stephen, as you know, in chapter 7, verse 58 to 8, 1. They put the feet of Steve, the clothes of Stephen at his feet, and he gave his consent, witness against him. Great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles, we are told, in chapter 8, verse 1. And as for Psalm, it says that he made havoc of the church in verse 3 of chapter 8 there, entering every house, 
dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. This man had no compassion, no mercy, no nothing. If you were a Christian, you were done. Now, as we get different scopes of Paul, he could have given us a very juicy testimony. He could have gone into great detail. He did not. He just lets us know he wasn't very nice. Okay? I love that. Too many times we're carried away by a pastor's testimonial. And the whole church is built around his testimony. That's idolatry. I'm not against testimonies, but you've got to be careful. Now the word havoc there in chapter 8 verse 3 means uh, to the son or to the follower treat shamefully. Appearing only this one time. He hated the Christian. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation from the Hebrew to the Greek writings, the word is used to describe a wild boar tearing up uh, vineyards. This is what Paul did. In fact, he said in Acts 22.4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. No mercy. Paul used to kill Christians. Now, if you think you can be saved, can you be that one? Wow. The word breathing literally means breathing in. What enabled them to continue this persecution? As if it was oxygen or food, it appears only this one time. In other words, there's very passion and hatred for that kept feeding on that fervency. Paul told Agrippa in Acts 26, 10 and 11, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly uh, enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. We're going to see Ananias. He probably went there because of persecution. I mean, when they heard the name Saul, everybody freaked out. Notice at the end of verse 1 and beginning of 2, his authority was from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. Saul had gone to the high priest Caiaphas. He was a Sadducee. A Sadducee were the materialists. The Pharisees were the religionists, okay? These guys didn't believe in angels, resurrection, or spirits. They were just in it for the money. Nothing new under the sun, is it? Now, Paul asked for letters to go to the synagogue, specifically here at Damascus, where uh, Caiaphas gives it to him. Later on, the office of Caiaphas is taken over by his son, Jonathan and Theophilus, uh, around A.D. 36 and 37. Uh, nepotism is a curse of the ministry, where pastors would give their ministry over to their sons just because they're their sons. Now, if God calls the individual, fine, but you do not handle this like a business. It's a curse. People do it all the time. It shouldn't be. Now, the synagogues, were in Syria here, the place of learning uh, for the men of Israel. Um, they, you required at least 12 Jewish men to have a synagogue. Um, and what was taught there was the word of God. There was not a place of sacrifice. And you never taught the word of God to a woman. Never. Even though in Jewish culture, the woman was considered the highest out of all, she's still considered low. They would not teach the word of God to a woman. Amazing. The name Saul, interesting enough, means ask or request or pray in the Hebrew. Probably he's been named after the first king, King Saul, who was really the people's choice, not God's choice, by the way. Now notice the rest of two there. His purpose was to return Christians who had fled from Jerusalem. 
Damascus is considered to be the oldest city in the world. The city had been in existence since the time of Abraham, uh, Genesis 14, 15, 15, 2, to mention a few, uh, about 200 miles uh, by road. And uh, the city became the capital of the powerful Aramaic kingdom, and it was made part of Arabia. King Aretas became a Roman vassal. Paul will mention him in 2 Corinthians uh, with the persecution of trying to kill him at the gate because there was some political upset with the marriage of his daughter and, 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 and the betrayal of her marriage. Now, Rome gave the Jews the right of extradition for them to go to any part of the empire and extract people who had been hostile towards the, quote, quote, Jewish religion. It says, if, quote, if any pestilent man have fled to you uh, from their own country, Judea, uh, hand them over to Simon, the high priest, so that he may punish them according to their law. You can find this in Maccabees 15.21, and you also get Paul making a reference to this in Acts 22.5. So they were the authority. Um, those in authority are not always the most honest. They're the most corrupt. Today, now they're having political here in uh, Pasadena and the Civic Auditorium. Um, um, the uh, Democrats and the Republicans, they're all a bunch of rats. They're all going to argue about who is in power and who's in control while the people are suffering. Nothing new under the sun, ladies and gentlemen. But you know what? The kingdom of God is well and healthy. The church of Jesus Christ is, um, is, is alive and healthy, and God is on the throne, and he's not biting his nails. It's amazing to me. Notice he says, those of the way, put that in quotations. They were the target, men and women, who lived after the person of Jesus Christ and his teachings. The term describes believers in Christ um, uh, who trusted the word of God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father by me. In John 14, 16, in the book of Acts, Luke speaks about the way, the way, the way. Uh, throughout different chapters. They were first called Christians at Antioch in Acts 11.26. Prior to that, they were called those on the way because Jesus said, I am the way. And the purpose was that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem here, those on the way. And so his hatred, again, is, is, is just constant. When you get to verse 3 and 7, you have Saul's conversion now near Damascus. He saw a light from heaven, verse 3 tells us, and the word suddenly means unexpectedly, okay? I'm sure that you did not expect to be saved when you got saved. You didn't get up that morning and say, you know what, I think I'll get saved today. Someone shared the gospel with you, whether you were born again that day or a week down the road, whatever it is, but God began to deal with your heart. Paul told the Jerusalem crowd that it was about noontime when you look at Acts 22, 6. And Paul told Agrippa in Acts 26, 13 through 14, that it was brighter than the sun and that all of them fell to the ground. Notice he fell to the ground and heard a voice. He deals with his personal experience. Verse 4. It does not say that he was slain in the spirit, a term that is used by extreme Pentecostal when people lay hands on you and you fall back and then you wiggle around on the ground. There's no such thing, okay? Now, people get emotional and they may faint, but there's no such thing in the Scripture. The only two people that were slain in the Spirit were Adonai's the fires. They never got up. So if you want to be contextual and accurate, you better make sure you don't take it out of context. Now, 
the voice was charging Paul, notice, whose name is Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Twice for emphasis. We read this in the scripture over and over. Abraham, Abraham. Twice. You know, when you were growing up, your mom said, John, John. You know, the tone of voice and the repetition, man, you better listen up. All of Paul's rage against Christianity was against Jesus. We're going to see. He saw Jesus in verse 5 whom he was persecuting to his own hurt. He said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord answered Saul emphatically on two things. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you literally, it says, keep persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the ghost. Paul says he saw Jesus literally in Acts 9.27, 1 Corinthians 9.1, Galatians 1.16. Jesus literally was seen by Paul. Paul told Barnabas he saw the Lord and he spoke to him as we get down to verse 27. The phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the gold, refers to the spike that was put when the plow, when the ox kicked back to refuse to plow, it would hit the spike and hurt him, and he would submit to plowing. Great metaphor here. Great imagery. All of a sudden, Paul was hurting himself. He was persecuting Jesus as he was persecuting Christians. Verse 6 He surrenders to Jesus. He trembled and was astonished. In other words, he responded as a servant. Listen, Lord, what do you want me to do? He's under new management now, just like you and I when we became born again. We have to remember that every day because we can forget easily. We can go from being born again to being religious. We can go from being passionate in love with Jesus to just, well, maybe I'll hang out with him today. Kind of like boyfriend, girlfriend, can't keep your hands off, can't wait there, then get married and say, well, what happened? We stopped cultivating that passion, that relationship. Very important. That's why you're in church. That's why you read the word of God. That's why you study. That's why you pray. That's why you get involved. Notice, he was told by the Lord to go into the city and he would be told what he, listen, must do. Underline that. Must do. He alone understood the voice. Verse 7 tells us the men stood speechless, mute, unable to speak for terror, astounded after they fell. Luke uses the word voice, phony, before in verse 4, an unintelligent voice. Luke used the word hearing, but it indicates an unintelligent voice by the parallel passages in Acts 22, 9, 26, 14. In other words, Paul heard intelligently what God was telling him, but the others heard something, but unintelligently, because God was dealing with Paul for salvation. You may be here and not know the Lord, and somebody else also here not know the Lord, and God is ministering to one salvation, and they're being blown away, and you're saying, when is this guy going to shut up so I can get out of here? All you hear is noise. Because God's the one who saves. God's the one that deals with your heart. I've never saved anybody in my life. I didn't save myself. The word seem 
means to be in a spectator viewing attentively to discern, but the men saw nothing. In other words, they were hearing without intelligent understanding and intently trying to figure out things out, seeing nothing. We get our word theater from this word. Notice in verse 8 and 9, Saul's condition at Damascus is given to us. He was blind as he arose from the ground. Powerful Pharisee, the Christian hater and killer, before all men is now abased by God. This is good. This is not bad. For God to humble me, that's the best thing that could ever happen. The best thing. The most precious gift that God can give us is that of sight, physical sight. I lost my eye when I was 23, my right eye. This is a phony eye. And the other one's flickering now at 67. Sometimes I can't see a word or something like that. But to see the, the physical, to see the face of the one you love, to be able to, when you don't have sight, I had to have something done. I went for a whole day being blind. It is weird. You depend so much on your sight, everything, it's incredible. He takes it from him. And notice, he was led by the hand as a little child to Damascus. The one who had made havoc of the church was stopped dead in his tracks. This is a good thing. The one who was leading others against God's people had to be led now to Damascus. Maybe you remember where you were at when God saved you and what a, what a contrast it was and, and how, what you had to think about and figure things out and go, what, what happened? And, and, but you know something happened. You know it was Jesus, but, and you know you were different now. You just knew. Verse 9, he was without sight, food, water for three days. The number could be symbolic of the death and resurrection. We don't know. But um, the time was one of confusion, I'm sure. As I said, reflection, contemplation over his life for his purpose of existence. All his life he has been a Jew. He's zealous for it and he just kills because he does everything. And all of a sudden his world has been crushed and rearranged. Does it sound familiar? The Lord messed my life up for good July of 1973. <laughs> as I lost my right eye, as the stick hit my eye and it punctured and it deflated my right hand. And I called on the Lord. And I got up, everybody freaked out. I said, I lost my eye, take me to the hospital. And God saved me. I used to have two eyes, I was blind. God allowed me to lose my eye and I got to see. God's grace, God's miracle, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. John Wesley was uh, converted to Eldersgate and he felt his heart warmly within him. And he knew that all of his sins had been forgiven. Yet years before, at the counsel of his father to go into the ministry for money and popularity, he came to America with the uh, Moravian Christians of Germany to convert the savage Indians, he said. And yet he was lost himself. Amazing. He got saved years later in Aldersgate. How God transformed that man and used him. Amazing. We never know if some of the most hateful and religious people that oppose Christianity will become the most committed vessels as Paul 
Think of Luther and many others. Josh McDowell began to disprove Christianity, and by his research, he ended up becoming a Christian, <laughs> and many others. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now that you're a Christian, God has many things for you to do. Don't come and ask me what God wants you to do. You go to God. God knows where you live. God will tell you what to do, where you fit in the body of Jesus Christ. The evidence of one's conversion is a clear sense of understanding one's lostness and the good news of the gospel. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, 16, 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation, the Jew first and the Gentile, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk 2, 4. The gospel is the only hope that mankind has. It's not in the Democratic Party. It's not in the Republican Party. It's not in America. It's not in, in a Christian president. It's, not, it's, not, it's in Jesus Christ. No one else. The condition of a person at and after conversion is humility and yielding to God in order to be led by him. Matthew 5, 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitude, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they, are, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, divide the word. Me, ek. You've got it. We think we're so great in the world. We really aren't. And it is good when we find out we aren't by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the greatest day of our life. It's a good beginning. So the conversion of Saul was by Jesus Christ. Now comes the commission, the commission of Saul, 10 through 19. The Lord sent Ananias to Saul, notice 10 through 14. His identity is said to be a disciple in the city of Damascus, and perhaps through the persecution he ended up there. A disciple simply means a learner, a pupil. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. You should be in church Sunday morning, evening, midweek. You should be growing. You should be involved. You should belong somewhere. You go to a church there consistently. Now, you have a lot of friends. You visit them once in a while, but you have a home where you live consistently, right? So you don't visit church. You live at church. All right? That's important if you're a Christian. Um, the Lord spoke to him. Notice in the vision, Ananias. A vision is while he's awake. A dream is while, by, when you're asleep. Ananias means Yahweh has graciously given. He's using this common individual Christian, a servant of God. Everybody, there's no other type of service but servant leadership. Notice his uh, prompt response to the vision saying, Here I am, Lord. His obedience reveals his servant type attitude. He's used, uh, the use of the word here, Lord, reveals his acknowledgement that he is the servant. He's no longer in the driver's seat. Do you believe that? Do you want to take the driver's seat? Sometimes we get in trouble, right? You've got to stay in the back seat. You can't even sit shotgun. Okay? You can't even sit shotgun. Look at verse 11 and 12. This particular instruction was for Saul's benefit. Your life is for the benefit of others. Get yourself out of the way. Get your eyes off yourself. The problem of your life and mine is I. The middle letter of the word sin is I. Maybe that's why the Mexicans say ay, 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 okay? <laughs> We're the biggest problem. Notice this for his benefit. He was told where to go. The street called straight. In 1980, we went all the way up to the street called straight to Damascus. You can't go up there now, but we did go up there. Now, 
He was to inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. He was to find him praying. Jesus to analyze the purpose of his errand. Notice, God had given Saul a vision also, revealing a man named Ananias, and that he would come and be put in his hands on him so that he could receive his sight. Verse 12. Mark this well. God will only confirm to you through someone else what he's already dealt with you about. Many people try the Holy Spirit. They say, you know, the Lord told me to tell you. You know, the Lord told me that you're going to marry me. (laughs) Okay. Listen, he knows where you live. He knows your social security. He knows how many hairs on your head. He will tell you something and he will confirm it through somebody else. It will not be news to you. If he tells you something and you're procrastinating, not dealing with it, he may send somebody to confirm the reproof. But it will never be news, only confirmation. That we're clear on this. All right? Look at 13 and 14. His prompt objection was understandable, but not news to Jesus. Listen to him. Ananias stated the past uh, uh, reputation here of Saul, hearing how much uh, harm he had done to the saints in Jerusalem, as if Jesus didn't know. As if Jesus would say, because this is what we do when we pray, right? We give God information. As if he did, like if he says, oh, you know, I'm glad you told me about that. Man, I would have given you the wrong thing. (laughs) Ananias stated the present reason for Saul's coming to Damascus, to bind all who call on your name with authority from the priest. As if God didn't know all this. Many times our prayer becomes just, you know, telling God all about it. And we spend 90% of that in information and very little in saying, Lord, What do you want me to do? Lord, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about that. Give me direction. He doesn't need information. He doesn't need that at all. Look at 15 and 16. The Lord revealed to Ananias the call of Saul. Saul was to be a chosen vessel of God's sovereignty, a vessel of mine. Underline that. Paul says, he separated me from my mother's womb and called me through grace in Galatians 1.15. Wow. Saul was to bear God's name, not his own. Before Gentiles, he called himself an apostle and teacher of the Gentiles in Romans eleven thirteen, First 1 Timothy 3, 7. Before kings, Agrippa, Nero, we'll see this in Acts 26. He indicates in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8 as he's going to have his head roll off as he's executed. Before the children of Israel, Paul always went first to who? The Jews, to the synagogue. We'll see this in Acts 13.5, 14.1, 17.1, and other passages. Paul, remember, told Agrippa in Acts 26.18 to open the eyes of the Gentile and Jews in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and inheritance. Wow, very specific, very succinct, very clear to the point. Today, the gospel is... It's so unclear by the emergent church. They don't want to talk about sin. They want to talk about repentance. They want to be politically correct. You know, you're not sure. You're just vertically challenged. You're not this and that. Shut up. You're short. You're short. You're fat. You're fat. That's life. Suck it up. Some things you can do something about. Some things you can't. Do not politically correct the gospel. Do not water it down. Simple. Saul was to suffer for Christ. Ooh, let's not talk about this. Verse 16. Now, Paul had very specific sufferings. But 
Every believer is called to suffering. Because you know what? The world don't love us. The world doesn't love Jesus. It's real simple. The suffering is emphatic. I will show him how many things he must suffer. Jesus would go through every suffering with him. And he declared that. All for have forsaken me, but the Lord stood with me. Second Timothy. Everything you go through, I go through. Sometimes we complain. We God's right behind. He's right on my side. I'm not even aware of it because I'm so caught up in myself. The reason? For my name's sake. Not because he was obnoxious. Not because he's bugging people. For his name's sake. A lot of people get told off and all that as Christians because they're obnoxious. Not because they're being witnesses for Jesus. They get told off at the work. Why? Because you're reading your Bible while you're working. You're robbing your employee. Read your Bible on your own time. Your break. Your lunch. I was witnessing. Witness after. Witness during lunch. Do not witness while you're working. You're robbing that employer. Simple. See, they first hated Jesus, then the disciples, then the apostles, and it's been like that ever since, everyone who's a believer. Paul gives a list of his sufferings, as you know, in Acts 14, 19, 22, 22, and 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 13, 2 Corinthians 11, 22 through 31. Incredible things. Shipwrecked. Beat with rods. Stripes. 40 minus 1. Imprisoned. On and on and on. Amazing. Look at 17 through 19. The Lord confirms Saul's call through Ananias now. In verse 17, Saul was attested to be a genuine believer by man. Notice Ananias went, entered the house, and laying his hands on Saul, called him brother. In spite of his past. This guy's a murderer. Now he's calling him brother. Whoa. All things have become new. You look at some people say, ooh, he used to be, oh, she, ooh. How about you? Ooh. <laughs> you see, my sin always looks uglier on you than on me. Because after all, you know, I'm, I'm special, right? You're especially bad. That's what you're special. Ananias told Saul that the Lord Jesus had, who had appeared to him on the road as he came, had sent him. There's confirmation on both ends. God told Saul, God told Ananias. Nothing new. Confirming the vision as a second witness, it was not news to Paul. God first deals with the person, then he confirms it to others in his word. Notice Ananias told Saul the purpose of his coming, which was twofold, that you may receive your sight and that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he's born again on the road. He's baptized with the Holy Spirit here, and then we're going to see as we move on, he's going to baptize in water. The order can be different as we see through Scripture, but the first thing has to happen, you have to be born again. Okay? It can happen the same day, all three of them. It can happen subsequently, but you must be born again. Verse 18, Saul affirmed, to be a genuine believer by God. Immediately, there fell from his eyes something like scales. The word scales is a medical term because Lucas is a physician. He gives us his word. It, it means skin that falls off. It appears only one time in the New Testament. This is it. What is it? People speculate, cataract. I don't know. Whatever God put on there, he took it off. All right? Maybe many little angels just covering his eyes. I don't know. Okay? But he couldn't see. Now he can't. Now, he received his sight at once. 
physical light was perceived. But think about it. For three days, physical sight was not perceived. But he never saw more than in those three days. You never saw more than the day when you repented from your sins and you saw Jesus Christ for who he is and you for who you are. That was a glorious day, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. He arose and he was baptized in water now in the name of Jesus. Water is symbolic of your born-again experience. It's a public confession of what happens in your heart. Jesus says you must be born again of the Spirit and of water. Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Water is not baptism in John 3, 3. It's the Word of God. John 15, 3 says you are cleansed by the words I have spoken unto you. The Word of God is proclaimed. The Holy Spirit makes it alive. You're born again. The contrast is the new birth and the regular birth of a baby from a woman. Okay? One's natural. The other one's spiritual. Romans 6 tells us that we are buried with Christ, symbolically being buried, putting the old man to death. We're being baptized as a witness, telling people what already has happened in our heart. Water does not complete your salvation. Water doesn't make you really born again. Water is only a public witness of what has happened in your heart. Water takes away no sin, 1 Peter 3.21 tells you. If you use some soap, you might get some dirt off, but no sin. I was baptized sprinkled as a, Christ, as a Catholic when I was little in Mexico City. I didn't repent. I didn't know what I was doing. Water baptism is immersion completely. Once you're born again, then your baptism is legitimate. But if you were never baptized and you leave and you get killed in an accident, you're going to be in heaven? Absolutely. You're complete in Christ Jesus and him dwells the fullness of Godhead body, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Wow. We practice baptism. We teach baptism. But it's not a requirement to be saved. Can you imagine Jesus telling the centurion guard, hey, listen, I just promised this guy uh, eternity in heaven, but I didn't baptize him. Could you take him down baptize him and put him back on the cross? Really? Wow. Saul was now in fellowship with God and his fellow man. Listen, the vertical is the most important. Once this gets fixed, this will get fixed. You try to fix this without this vertical, you're dead. It won't happen. He received food and was strengthened in verse 19, and he spent some days with the disciples <clears throat> at the Ma Damascus. Now, think of what Paul must have been thinking all this time. His life pursued being crushed. All, the all, of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, he knew how wrong he was. Instantly. And imagine the disciples are there with him, calling him brother and all that, and he takes out the letters that has the name of them guys to arrest him and to throw him in prison. Whoa. Radical change. All things become new. When the missionaries to Fiji were on board, uh, the individuals tried to persuade them not to go to Fiji. He says, they'll kill you. Because they were cannibals, remember. And they said, we died long ago. They were committed to the commission. If God sends you, no matter how dangerous it is, you'll go. If man sends you, you'll be right back or never leave. If God sends you, you'll be effective. If man sends you, I don't think so. If God sends you, you depend upon him. If man sends you, you'll be waiting for their check to help you. By the way, God sent Paul and Barnabas out in chapter 13, verse 2. Not the church. They didn't depend on the church. They depended on the Lord. They were effective. There's the key, ladies and gentlemen. We're too busy sending people out. They were never belonging or called by God to go out. Wow. 
We never know when or how we might be God's instrument to be part of God's call on someone's life. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You never know the time that God will use you to reach somebody that will be used tremendously by God, and you'll never know that you were part of it. What God did through you, the things you talked about, 30 seconds, 30 minutes, or whatever it may be. And sometimes you'll know that God is using you. But we're just to be obedient. Every one of us is commissioned to proclaim the gospel without respect to persons. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 is the uh, great commission, not the great suggestion. It's a participle in your going, when you go, as you go. That's why we go. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. And so we proclaim the gospel through the pulpit. The first step out of here is missions. Out and we go street witnessing. We go to Mexico. We do medical. That's where we go overseas. We go to down South America, wherever. As God sends us. We don't want to do what the churches are doing. We want to do what God wants us to do. We're not here to compete. We're not here to compare. We're here to obey the word of the Lord. Sometimes people come and say, why don't you guys do this? Well, we don't do it. Well, our, our church won't go there. Can you imagine going to a person's house and saying, why do you put your couch there? You should put it over here. I put it over here. Shut up. Go home. <laughs> we're, we're weird as Christians, you know? It's weird. Suffering is part of the Christian life. First Peter writing to the suffering church, uh, uh, chapter 4, 1 Peter 16 through 19 says, if, Yet if anyone suffers a Christian, let it not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come, the judgment will begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinners appear? Therefore, let those who suffer, listen carefully, according to the will of God, commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. Wow. When's the last time you heard a sermon about suffering under the will of God? We as American church don't know anything about it. We just read about suffering. The rest of the church, the rest of the years, for 2,000 years, they've been suffering. Who's the greater, the, the better, has the greater benefit of it? They do, not us. Materialism, comfort, has hurt the church in America. Hasn't helped it. Hasn't helped it at all. God is faithful always to confirm our call through his word, praying, and opening doors. Uh, Paul in Romans 8, 29-31 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Um, he also predestined to conform to Jesus Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, them he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Don't worry about God's predestination and his election and your free will. Just make sure if he knocks on the door of your heart, you open that door and walk in. Okay? You have a choice where you spend eternity. God doesn't determine that. You do. Okay? Uh, don't be worrying about God. God's not going to make a mistake. You are the one that can make a mistake. Okay? You have a free will. You were free to choose to come to church this morning or to stay home. You chose to come. Others did not. It's a choice. Okay? You get to choose where you spend eternity, in heaven or hell. What would men and women right now in hell wish they could hear the gospel one more time? Just one more time. Because they know there's a hell. Therefore, they know there's a heaven. 
it's a bad time to find out you're wrong. You do that before you die, ladies and gentlemen. The commission of Saul was to preach the gospel of Christ. Third and last comes the consecration of Saul, 20 through 31. Notice um, in verse 20, the man Saul had a new message. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogue. The, preach, the word caruso is, is, means a messenger, one who proclaims. The state would hire him and the king would have him to make proclamations. The message was not his. It was given to him. The authority was not his. It was vested to him. He was not responsible for the response of the people, only the proclamation. I am the messenger. I am not responsible for your response, but I preach and I teach with all the passion and all the commitment that I can during the week, and I leave it in God's hands. You are responsible to God. I am responsible to God. He heralded Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament, the seed of the woman promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. He heralded that Jesus was the one substitute for the sins of the world, for the redemption. He preached that Christ the Messiah was the Son of God, the one the Father had sent, the Son of God appearing in the Incarnation. You can't have God appearing if he's not incarnate. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and God was the Word. And the Word became flesh, beheld his glory, as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow. Look at 21 and 22. Not only did Saul have a new message, but Saul had a new witness. In 21, his conduct towards Christianity changed. He no longer persecuted them. All who heard were amazed. The word amazed means to throw out of position. I guess so. Just like you. You used to be the party animal maybe or whatever it was, and all of a sudden your friends think you smoked the big one. They feel sorry for you. You used to be fun. Now you just go to church and talk about Jesus. All, both Jew and Christian, were astounded, not making sense of it. All were trying to figure Saul out in view of his past reputation. They said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on the name, his name in Jerusalem? They knew his commission to come here for that very purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. Everybody's having a difficult time, including Paul. What's going on here? But Paul got settled once he went to Damascus. The growth in Christ, notice, progressed. In verse 22, Saul increased, but Saul increased all the more in strength. The contrast is a sharp contrast by the word but. Though all were confounded, Paul continued to grow. Wow! Nothing moved this guy. While everybody's freaking out, he's moving forward. The words increase in strength is the same word in the Greek. simply means to be strengthened. The key is he did so all the more to a greater degree. He just kept growing spiritually. He became bolder in Christ. In fact, the rest of 22, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ, Confounded means to disturb the mind, implying to steer trouble. He became an enemy now of his own kind. Saul was proving, meaning the cause to coalesce, to join together, showing the Old Testament text 
and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. They're one. You and I are to show that to the world, to give an answer to every man for the reason, the hope that lies in it with meekness and fear, 1 Peter 3.15 says. So we study, we pray, we gather together. Saul was incredibly educated under Gamaliel, the Old Testament, Hebrew, Greek culture, scholar. Look at 23 through 25. Now the man Saul also had a new enemy. The Jew plotted to kill him, referring to an, a formal resolution that was passed. You got to take him out. He was the greatest for us. Now he's the greatest against us. Got to eliminate him. The Jews saw Paul as a menace to their commitment to the law. The Jews saw Paul as a betrayer and a traitor. Galatians 1, 11 through 12 and 16 through 18 tells us by his own commentary. In 24, his enemies were religious zealous as he was before. The plot became known to Saul, probably by God, to protect him in verse 24. And the Jews watched the gate day and night in order to kill him. They hated him. Paul had been learning in the desert for three years with Jesus Christ. As Jesus had spent three years with the disciples and the apostles, so would Paul for three years. Galatians 1.18 tells us that. He received the gospel not from man, but from Jesus Christ directly. Uh, the three years fit between verse 20 and 23. Okay? Sometimes we miss that. Let me show you. Chapter 1 of Genesis to chapter 12, verse 1, 2,000 years. Chapter 12, verse 1 of Genesis to the end of Malachi, 2,000 years. 12 chapters, the rest of the Old Testament. <laughs> God's not interested in giving us everything. We wouldn't get through it. Trust me. Notice his enemies of the past were now his friends, the Christians. Verse 25. The disciples took him by night, revealing the dangerous situation, and the disciples led him down through the wall in his large basket, revealing his love for them to protect him. The number one killer of Christians now was the number one enemy of the Jews, a brother in Christ. Wow. See, only God can allow you and I to hang out together, even when we know about our past, because we believe that Jesus died for our sin and he made us whiter than snow. If you're religious, you may act it, but still at heart, you know, our flesh is still there, so we have to be real careful. We have to be real careful, ladies and gentlemen. You must reckon that old woman dead and that old man dead. Every time he comes out, you take his head off or he will take yours off. Paul confirms that King Aretas wanted to take his head off and he guarded also the gate in 2 Corinthians eleven thirty-two 32-33 because Aretas was at war with Herod because he was the son-in-law and he had divorced his daughter to marry Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So this political stuff going on mixed in with the religious, some bad stuff. Aretas reigned from B.C. 9 A.D. to 40. It is now about 38 A.D. But notice also the man Saul had a new family, 26 and 27. Saul's first attempt to join himself to the disciples of Jerusalem brought a twofold response. <clears throat> first, they were all afraid of him, rightly so, knowing who he was. Nobody's heard of him. Three years, he dropped in a hole. All of a sudden, he shows up. They did not believe that it was a disciple. They probably thought he's trying to infiltrate us so he can arrest us. This is the first time they've seen him. 
Verse 27, Saul's first acceptance came from Barnabas. Underline his name. His name means uh, son of consolation. He first appears in Acts 4, 36 and 37 when the church gets in trouble and he gives some land to the church. And the word but there emphasizes the sharp contrast between the others who would not take a chance on Paul and Barnabas who did. And he introduces them to the apostles there. The witness of Barnabas was that Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that uh, the Lord had spoken to him how he had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. So God is putting this stuff together a little bit at a time. God's at work. And then also the man Saul had now a new perspective. Now he was fleeing for his life. Wow. You're the persecutor. Now you're the persecutee. They're pursuing you now. He labored with the apostles at Jerusalem going in and out. It says in 28, he saw only Peter and James remembering his, his, uh, the brother of Jesus and for 15 days and he didn't see anybody else. He tells us in Galatians 1, 18 through 19. He spoke boldly to the Hellenists at Jerusalem in the name of the Lord, disputing with the Hellenists who were Hebrews who were seeped in the Greek culture and spoke Greek. And he became a target of their anger and they attempt to kill him. So he's got the Hellenists, he's got the Pharisees, he's got the Sanhedrin, man, he's got all these guys against him. And he was now sent to Tarsus from Jerusalem in verse 30. Notice the brethren finding out about this sent Saul down to Caesarea. Once again, they come to his rescue by God directing and guiding the family of God. The apostle Saul was as bold and radical for Christianity as he was as a Jew. Paul saw this was the direction of Jesus, and he was doing this at the direction of the Lord. Because in Acts 22, 17 through 22, he says that Jesus told him as he was in the temple to leave Jerusalem, they would not accept his witness that he would send them to the Gentiles. So we get a fill-in of more information of what happened that we don't have here by his own words. The time for Paul's ministry at Jerusalem was not yet to be. The love for Paul, again, is demonstrated by their protection for him. Notice the brethren sent him to Tarsus. Tarsus is about 300 miles north, um, a maritime province in the southeast of Asia Minor on the Mediterranean, um, the birthplace of Saul, or Paul, one of the chief towns of the seat of uh, celebrated the schools of philosophy there, very seeped in the University of Tarsus. Its luxurious climate instructed and attracted many Greeks residents after the incorporation of uh, the Macedonian Empire. It was formed into a Roman province in about 67 B.C. So Paul declared that he had labored, as he writes to the Galatians, in the, that region, but he was unknown to the church of Judea, but they heard only that the one who used to persecute now preached the faith and attempt, that he attempted to destroy and they glorify God in Galatians 1, 21 to 24. So as you look at all his letters, you piece it all together, you see the incredible work of God. There's so much more that I'm sure could have been given to us, but enough is given to us that we can get a clear picture of what's going on. God was at work in his life, just as he is in yours. Later on, his second missionary journey, he went through Syria, as you know, Cilicia, confirming the churches in Acts 15:41. Tarsus was famous for his goat's hair clothes uh, called Cilicium. 
Paul learned in his youth a trade. He was a tent maker. Jewish fathers taught a trade always to their sons so they wouldn't need to rob or be dishonest so they can earn a living always. Saul preached and labored for about 12 to 13 years before Barnabas sought him for the ministry at Antioch. Three in Arabia and probably about nine or so uh, in the desert, uh, up in, uh, in Tarsus, Cilicia area. Amazing. And he was just doing what God called him. He didn't need to be in the alumni. He didn't need to be with the dirty dozen. You know, it's, it's okay. Some people just want to hobnob, you know. Who you know, who you rub elbow with. I could care less. Who cares? Notice his absence gave time for the churches to grow and develop in verse 31. This is another summary statement. The church is singular, not plural, like in the English. All Judea, Galatia, and Samaria, because there's only one church. The church has peace, edified. The church was walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the church multiplied through the word of God, God directing and guiding. Uh, a teacher once asked what consecration was to him, and he pulled out a, a white sheet of paper, and he says, it is signing your name at the bottom of this blank sheet and letting God fill in his will as you walk with him. That's good. He's the one that gives the orders. The consecrated person has a new message, ladies and gentlemen, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing less. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says, Now then we are ambassadors of Christ as though God is pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. That's what we do because we know there's a real hell and people are blind just like we used to be and dead. The consecrated person will manifest a new witness, a daily evidence providing the evidence of a changed life. Romans 12, 1 and 2, presenting your body a living sacrifice, holy and accepting to God, which is your reasonable service. Not being fashioned to this world system, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Living sacrifice. Every day, wow. The consecrated person has a new enemy, those who were like him in the past. First Peter 4, 4 says, In regards to these, they think it's strange that you now run with, do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil to you. You used to be the party animal. You used to be the life of the party. You used to do this. And now, now you're a drag. Wow. Thank you for the compliment. Consecrated person has a new family, a heavenly one. Ephesians three fourteen through sixteen says, "For this reason, I bow my knee to the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to His riches and His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man." Think of all the people you have as friends. Think of the world, the people you had. You probably had less than three or four people you really depend on in the world. You might have known a lot of people, but I'm talking about friends. That will be there no matter what. Now as Christians, you have so many people. Now you're going to find flakes in the body of Christ. You're going to find people that are not committed. But man, let me tell you, the number of people that you have in the family of God now is incredible. Incredible. The consecrated person may have to flee for their life. It's an absolute principle. Matthew five twelve. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. 
doesn't mean that you will. It means you have to be open to be able to suffer for Christ because he's worthy. He's worthy all the way. So the consecration of Saul was to live in Christ. Absolutely no other sphere but in Christ. And so the salvation of Paul, or Saul here, results in a life-transforming experience on the Damascus Road, characterized by his conversion. It was by Jesus Christ. His commission was to preach the gospel of Christ, and his consecration was to live in Christ. How are we doing? <laughs> we all live in the same place, ladies and gentlemen. We all used to be the same, dirty, rotten sinners. Now we're saints. You're an ain't or a saint. Which one are you? You've got to match up your life, ladies and gentlemen, by the grace of God. Father, thank you for your love and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Deal with our hearts, and we thank you for just your mercy, Lord. Thank you for every person here. I pray that your spirit would deal with the heart of those who don't know you over the Internet, over the radio, or here, that they would call on your name and be saved. If you're out there and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has called you to be saved. God desires for you to turn from your sin, call on his name, and he will forgive you and he will make a new creation of you and he will begin to direct and guide your life. You have his word, not mine. So if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to him, to be born again. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.